This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardi Nerds fam. This is Amit Goyal. Welcome back to a Cardi Nerds case report. We get to travel together to Los Angeles to learn about some great cardiology from UCLA fellows. We have with us doctors Adrian Castillo, Nagin Shahende, and Dr. Patrick Zaka. I'm really excited to have Dr. Zaka with us today. As many of you know, Patrick is a Cardiners Academy house chief and is a veteran of the show. Why don't we just go ahead and dive right in? Folks, would you introduce yourselves to the audience? Thank you so much, Amit. I'm so excited to be here, especially with my UCLA co-fellows. I'm currently a cardiology fellow at UCLA, finishing up my first year. I did my residency training at Emory University back in Atlanta and my medical school in the American University of Beirut. Again, so happy to be doing another Cardio Nerds case report with you all today. Hi everyone, this is Adrian. I am so excited to be joining the Cardio Nerds today and thrilled to be here along with my co-fellows. Like Patrick, I'm one of the first year fellows at UCLA. I did my medical school at UCLA and then went to Stanford for my internal medicine residency. And um, now loving being back at UCLA for cardiology. Hi everyone, my name is Nagin. Thank you so much for the invitation to join the Cardio Nerds today. I'm really thrilled to be here for this case. I'm a third year fellow at UCLA and I'm soon starting my advanced heart failure and transplant fellowship as well. My clinical interests are in cardio obstetrics and heart transplantation. Actually, now that I think about it, Nagin, hadn't you won one of our weekly EKG case challenges? Wasn't that you? That's right. Yeah, that was during my first year of fellowship. Very much in the spirit of Chief fellow dumb. Congratulations for that and welcome everyone. It is such a joy for me to be back in Los Angeles. Where are we going to hang out while we discuss cardiology? Amit, I've got that taken care of. We're going to be hanging out at Venice Beach today. It's going to be sunset. We're watching people play basketball. After we finish this case, we're going to be joining them and playing some basketball as well. Well, I am virtually transporting myself from suburban Cleveland to Venice Beach in Los Angeles, and I am loving it. With this backdrop, let's get to our case. All right, with that, we'll get started. So the patient we're seeing today is a woman in her 40s who presented to the emergency department reporting one month of progressively worsening fatigue. All right, Adrian, we are starting off with a generalized complaint. So let us dive in a little more into the history of present illness of this patient and learn some more. Of course. So when we talk to her a little bit further, she specifically elaborated that she was feeling more winded than usual with her regular activities. She was just getting, you know, kind of tired sooner, didn't have quite as much energy as before. She had actually been seen by her primary care doctor relatively recently and as an outpatient had been noted to be newly anemic and iron deficient. So in the past couple of weeks, she had been started on oral iron supplementation. In addition to the fatigue, she also endorsed several weeks of new night sweats and joint pain. We asked her further about any bleeding or blood loss, and she denied any melana, hematochesia, hematemesis, or any other abnormal bleeding. All right, so a little more detailed history with the more winded. I take that a little bit 
to mean shortness of breath, potentially. The anemia is certainly concerning. I wonder if there's any bleeding that we're not aware of, but also you mentioned the constitutional symptoms like night sweats and joint pains. So I wonder if there's any rheumatologic disorder, if there's any malignancy as well that's going on with this patient. Tell me a little bit about this patient's past medical history. So her past medical history was notable for papillary thyroid cancer, which was diagnosed within the past 10 years. She had declined surgical resection for her cancer and instead opted to pursue holistic therapy outside of the country. Sounds good, Adrian. Now, what about her exam? So when she initially presented, she was noted to be afebrile and was hemodynamically stable with a normal heart rate and blood pressure. She was noted to be thin and slightly anxious appearing. On her cardiac exam, she had a regular rhythm with a normal S1 and S2 and no appreciable murmurs, rubs, or gallops. The remainder of her exam was otherwise unremarkable. Okay, so I don't think the physical exam is necessarily adding too much to our differential, but maybe also narrowing our differential down. When we think of things like shortness of breath, as she mentioned, she was feeling very winded. One of the things we think about is, does this patient have COPD? Does this patient have heart failure? But I don't necessarily see any signs of this on exam, given the clear lung sounds, flat JVP, doesn't look like she has edema as well. So just things that are maybe getting lower on my differential as you're telling me the physical exam. Patrick, I totally agree. There are some pertinent negatives that we're learning about here. And her chief complaint is fatigue, right? And it clearly has a broad differential diagnosis that spans anything from psychiatric illness through cardiovascular illness. I think the specific abnormalities here for a relatively otherwise healthy woman is that she was recently diagnosed with anemia and she has these complaints of constitutional symptoms. So I'm wondering, you know, really right now I'm thinking of a Venn diagram that includes fatigue. I'm going to probably box that in with constitutional symptoms. So, so far what we really have is constitutional symptoms with an anemia in a middle-aged female. And one question that's coming to my mind right now is, is what changed, right? I mean, she's been feeling tired for some time. Why is she in the ED? This isn't an outpatient visit. So Adrian, do you have a sense of what changed in her picture that made her come to the emergency room for more urgent evaluation? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think she just realized that doing her kind of daily activities was becoming a lot more difficult. And she was worried that, you know, kind of her age just seemed out of proportion to what she would expect. And so she was just really hoping to to feel better. Gosh. So that, I mean, that's, that's really helpful there, right? Because like, you know, I'm an interventional cardiology fellow and everyone here is a cardiology fellow. Like, like we get tired, right? I mean, but we don't go to the ED to the point that for if for a person to go to the emergency room because they're tired, there is a level of urgency here that she just can't function anymore. So we're taking this very seriously. And is it that this is, we didn't diagnose the cause of her anemia. She ended up on iron supplements. Maybe there's something else or some other ideology of the anemia that's causing this syndrome, or is it something else causing both problems? And so, yeah, yeah, I think we need to dive in a little bit deeper and especially <laughs> looking forward to the CBC here. But yeah, Adrian, what workup did we get in the ED? So in the emergency room, a broad panel of labs was sent. On her CBC, her white blood count was 9.7. Her hemoglobin was 6.6 with an MCV of 59.1. And her reticulocyte count was 1.8%. Her platelet count was 686. On her basic metabolic panel, all of her electrolytes were within normal limits, and she had a creatinine of 0.54. Her LFTs were within normal limits. Her TSH and free T4 were within normal limits, and that was the extent of the initial labs. 
So here we're clearly seeing the anemia with the hemoglobin of 6.6. .6. That looks like it's a microcytic anemia because of the low MCV, which in this case is in the 50s. So I, I wonder if this is the major culprit in causing her symptoms. Adrian, any other imaging in the ER that we should know of? She had a chest X-ray done, which was normal. An ECG was done in the emergency department, which showed normal sinus rhythm with a heart rate in the 80s. She was noted to have low voltages in the precordial leads, and she had nonspecific T-wave abnormalities in the precordial and inferior leads. Okay, Adrian. So I'm assuming with all these findings, I mean, this patient is clearly concerned about her symptoms of fatigue, and they translate to lab studies that correlate with those symptoms potentially. I assume there was further workup, possibly admission to the hospital. And I wonder what was done for her in the hospital? How was her hospital course? What was the initial management to her? So she was admitted to the medicine service for further evaluation and management of her anemia and symptoms. Iron studies revealed an iron level of 13 micrograms per deciliter, a total iron binding capacity of 357 micrograms per deciliter, with an iron saturation of 3.6%. Her ferritin was 109 nanograms per milliliter. Given these findings, they discussed blood transfusions with the patient. However, she would not consent to blood transfusions. She was amenable to IV iron replacement, however, so she did receive IV iron, and the GI team was consulted to further discuss EGD and colonoscopy for further diagnostic evaluation of her anemia. Yeah, I mean, so far, this is kind of starting to paint an interesting picture. She's pretty profoundly anemic, but her iron stores are not that depleted, right? Her ferritin is above 100. She's got thrombocytosis, and she's got constitutional symptoms. So overall, it's painting a picture of systemic inflammation, maybe with a, a component of anemia of chronic disease. But I, I'm curious what the, the rest of the steps sort of revealed about what's going on for her. Yeah, so I think the, the medicine team taking care of her was similarly interested in what might be causing this constellation of findings. She actually, prior to, to getting the EGD and colonoscopy, went into atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, which is when cardiology was consulted to weigh in on her case. Now, this atrial fibrillation is definitely something, a new part to the story. Does she report a history of palpitations or chest discomfort or, you know, shortness of breath before this one month interval? Or was she symptomatic from the atrial fibrillation or was this just identified maybe on telemetry? Great question. So she has no known history of atrial fibrillation and denied any palpitations as an outpatient. When she was noted to go into atrial fibrillation during this hospitalization, she did endorse palpitations but denied any chest pain or dyspnea associated with this. All right. So at this point, it looks like they consulted you, Adrian, to, to help with the case. So what was your initial impression and management of this atrial fibrillation? At the time I saw her, she was in atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response with heart rates in the 130 range. But she was otherwise hemodynamically stable with a normal blood pressure and beyond the palpitations was not having chest pain or shortness of breath and did not appear to be in acute distress. We treated her with oral metoprolol, and with that, were able to achieve rate control of her atrial fibrillation. In addition, we wanted to pursue further diagnostic evaluation to see why she may have gone into atrial fibrillation. Certainly, we considered the anemia as a potential trigger, but to be complete, we also ordered a transthoracic echocardiogram for further evaluation. That sounds great, Adrian. Now, 
in, in atrial fibrillation in and of itself, what would generally be your kind of schema, your diagnostic workup to see what could be the potential risk factors or triggers for the atrial fibrillation? Yeah. So there's, of course, a large number of you know, potential drivers for, for atrial fibrillation. And when I kind of think about it, there's a number of different buckets or you know, etiologies I always consider. Certainly, I want to evaluate the serum electrolytes to look for insignificant derangements there. I always want to check uh, TSH and to see if thyroid dysfunction could be contributing. A CBC for things like anemia, chest x-ray, sleep study, particularly if sleep apnea might be suspected in the patient I'm seeing. And then if there's, you know, potential suggestion of ischemia, would consider, you know, further evaluation for that as well. And an echo for any structural heart disease. Thank you, Adrian. That was a nice comprehensive list to help with our differential for at least the triggers of atrial fibrillation. Nagin, I just wanted to ask you, as we're ordering this echo, what are things that in a patient with atrial fibrillation you would be looking for on an echocardiogram? What are the things that you would be interested in, in checking kind of at first glance? That's a great question, Patrick. When I approach looking at an echocardiogram for a patient with atrial fibrillation, the purpose for me really is to evaluate the entire cardiac structure and function and see if there's anything that could be contributing. Really, atrial fibrillation is commonly due to left atrial dilatation or elevated left atrial pressures, anything that puts the left atrium under stress. So important things to look at would be valvular function, biventricular function, that would be systolic and diastolic function, particularly for the left ventricle. I like to look for evidence of ischemic heart disease, as, that, as we already discussed, that can contribute to atrial fibrillation. And then you can look for other, maybe less common things, but pericardial pathology, such as pericardial effusion or pericarditis, and a number of congenital heart defects that can also contribute to atrial fibrillation. Great. Thank you so much, Nagin, for that nice summary on what to look for on an echo in a patient with atrial fibrillation. And with that, Adrian, please share with us what you found on this echo. So on her echo, we found that the left ventricle cavity size was normal with mildly increased wall thickness. Her left ventricle had normal systolic function with an ejection fraction of 70%, and she had no regional wall motion abnormalities. Her right ventricle was normal in size and function, and her left and right atrium were also both normal in size. She had no significant valve disease. We were quite surprised, though, when we saw the results involving her pericardium. She had a moderate pericardial effusion that was seen circumferential to her heart. There was no evidence, echocardiographic evidence of tamponade physiology, but they did also note a large mass that was seen in the pericardial space posterior to her heart, but in the right atrium and right ventricle. It measured 5.5 by 5.9 centimeters and appeared extracardiac on the echo. Wow, Adrian, that's certainly shocking. I certainly wasn't expecting to to hear that this patient had a, a pericardial mass or a mass right near the pericardium. Let's take a moment to describe what, what the pericardial anatomy looks like. So the pericardium actually has several layers, an outer fibrous sac and an inner serous sac with a visceral and parietal layers. The average thickness is less than two millimeters. And normally there's anywhere between 25 to 50 cc's of transitative fluid. And the reason I wanted to take a step back is because pericardial masses are pretty rare. I mean, one in 10,000 cases. So that's probably why it wasn't on my differential, but I'm curious to see what happened next. Patrick, just like you, we were quite surprised as well when we saw this result. Pericardial mass was certainly not something I expected to find on her echo. Nagin, 
when you think about pericardial masses, what's on your differential and how do you approach evaluation of them? Great question, Adrian. When I approach pericardial masses, I first try to differentiate whether something looks like a discrete mass or a tumor or whether it's something different. The something different category could be anything from pericardial cysts or diverticulum to a hematoma or thrombus. That's more common in patients with a history of trauma or surgery, or things like tuberculomas, loculated effusions, and even gossy pipomas or retained foreign objects. Once we've excluded those things, those different things, then I turn towards neoplastic processes. And within the neoplasm category, you can differentiate between benign and malignant neoplasms. Benign neoplasms are by far much more common and account for at least 80% of pericardial masses. These are things like lipomas, fibromas, hemangiomas, teratomas, and the list goes on. Malignant neoplasms, on the other hand, are much less common and account for the other 20% of pericardial masses. More than 99% of these are usually metastatic disease. Less than 1% are actually primary pericardial tumors. And of those primary pericardial tumors, the most common is by far sarcoma or angiosarcoma. Other things that can do it are lymphomas, mesotheliomas, and neuroectodermal tumors. Of the malignancies that can be metastatic to the pericardium, the most common primary source of these tumors is breast cancer, lung cancer, renal cell carcinoma, lymphoma, and melanoma. Nagin, thank you so much. That was a great overview. And, you know, now we are at this patient's bedside. We want to help her as best we can. So we got to take out our toolkit and figure out what is the best next step in imaging modality or diagnostic modalities for us to diagnose what's going on. So can you take us over what the next imaging modalities or the available imaging modalities are for pericardial masses? So we already have some imaging information available for our patient, and that's the echocardiogram that she had. Echocardiography is a great first step in the evaluation of pericardial masses. It's widely available, cost-effective, and safe. However, there are some important limitations. It is operator-dependent, and sometimes our windows may be limited in certain patients. It also has a limited ability to characterize tissue. Sometimes we need more advanced imaging platforms. And the two that come to mind first for me are cardiac CT and cardiac MRI. Cardiac CT is great because it can be performed relatively quickly and is also widely available. It provides superior tissue characterization compared to echocardiography, and it also allows us to look at other structures outside of the heart. It can be useful for preoperative planning, especially if we're thinking about resecting tumors. However, a limitation of cardiac CT, one that might be particularly applicable to our patient, is that it can be difficult to gate these studies for patients who have tachycardia or arrhythmias. It also involves the use of ionizing radiation and often requires ionated contrast. Another great imaging tool is cardiac MRI. Cardiac MRI is really helpful when it comes to evaluating pericardial masses because it allows us to characterize the tissue and often helps make the diagnosis. However, there's a lot of limitations with cardiac MRI. It can be challenging to gate these studies in patients with tachycardia and arrhythmias as well. The imaging sequences are often longer and require patients to do breath holds. There's also a lot of issues with accessibility and expertise in reading cardiac MRI across the country. Furthermore, there can be difficulties in performing cardiac MRI in patients with implanted electronic devices or any other metallic implants. 
Nagin, that's a great overview for the diagnostic tools that we have to help this patient. I wonder, is there any role for PET CT imaging in this patient? That was a question I was wondering as well, Patrick. As you can imagine, with a diagnosis as rare as a pericardial mass, there isn't very many you know, large studies looking at the role for PET in pericardial masses. However, there have been a few small studies published. In the evidence I reviewed, it seems that with PET CT imaging, there is a high negative predictive value for the assessment of malignancy in these masses. It does not perform as well in terms of positive predictive value. So PET imaging may have a role as a possible adjunct in determining whether or not a lesion could be malignant in addition to cardiac CT and cardiac MRI. Got it. Thank you, Adrian. So now with everything that Nagin explained to us and with what you just explained to us, you're at this patient's bedside. She needs your help. And I know she's lucky to have someone like you taking care of her. So what was the next diagnostic step for you? So after talking with the patient, you know, about this finding and, you know, wanting to, to do our best to further characterize and, and find out what could be causing this, we decided to perform a cardiac MRI for further evaluation. On cardiac MRI, the mass was seen, measured 6.6 centimeters, and was noted to displace the heart superiorly with some mass effect. With contrast, it showed peripheral enhancement with central necrosis. It was read as being concerning for neoplasm, but further characterization could not be given. Based on these results, and with a concern for a potential neoplastic etiology, we decided to then obtain a PET CT scan. On the PET scan, the pericardial mass was noted to be hypermetabolic. There were no lymph nodes that were hypermetabolic, and there were no other metastatic foci of disease that were identified. So ultimately, this was felt to reflect a primary pericardial neoplasm. And the differential consideration it mentioned includes sarcoma, paraganglioma, or a germ cell tumor based on these findings. Adrian, thank you for telling us all about those imaging findings. But, you know, just to recap a little bit of, of, of what we've seen so far, we have a patient in her 40s who's coming in with a month kind of subacute symptoms, feeling very fatigued. And so far, we found that she has anemia, likely secondary to chronic disease. She has at least a moderate sized pericardial effusion. She has displacement of her heart as seen on the cardiac MRI. So really multiple reasons for her to be feeling so fatigued. And now that we have good imaging of what this mass looks like, I wonder what the next step would be in confirming a diagnosis one, but also seeing if, if in confirming that diagnosis, we're able to, to provide therapeutic relief as well. So what did you end up doing for her in your next step of management? Given the findings on the cardiac MRI and the PET scan, we were worried about a malignant etiology for the mass. As is often the case with, the, uh, with cancer, tissue is the issue. And so initially we discussed with our surgical colleagues whether or not a biopsy of this mass would be feasible. But after extensive discussion, it was felt that a biopsy would be too high risk a procedure. After the patient's case was presented at tumor board, it was ultimately felt that the safest approach was to proceed with full surgical resection and omit a biopsy in advance. That sounds like a great plan, Adrian. I know it, it also sounds like a high-risk procedure. Was the patient amenable to undergoing this procedure? And if so, what kind of results did you see on the biopsy? So as you can imagine, the patient was you know, quite surprised 
with these findings, but understood our concern with the potential for this to be malignant lesion. And after further discussion with our team and our surgical colleagues, the patient agreed that the best step moving forward to both diagnose and treat this mass would be to proceed with full surgical resection. She ultimately underwent complete surgical resection with cardiac surgery. Intraoperatively, they found that the mass arose from her inferior vena cava, spread through the pericardium, and was invading part of the right atrium wall. They were ultimately able to successfully resect the entire mass and performed an extensive reconstruction of her caval atrial junction with bovine pericardium. After a few days, the pathology resulted showing a malignant vascular neoplasm felt to be most likely a high-grade epithelial angiosarcoma. Wow, Adrian. I mean, this this was mind-blowing just to see how she presented and and where we where we got to right now. I don't think anyone expected such a turn of events and such a rare entity being the culprit of her symptoms in this epithelioid angiosarcoma. So just wanted to brush on a little bit about what these angiosarcomas entail. And usually treatment of these cardiac angiosarcomas combines surgery followed by adjuvant chemotherapy and or radiation. Radiation being somewhat challenging because of cardiac and respiratory motion, you can imagine that the location makes this very challenging. Oftentimes, uh, anthracyclines, taxanes, and iphosphamide are the are the adjuvant chemotherapy agents of choice. So I'm curious to see what who this patient followed up with, and ultimately if if she received adjuvant chemotherapy and or radiation. And I think one additional component to all of this was that she had ne- negative surgical margins. So I also wonder how that impacted her further care. We were thrilled as well that she had negative surgical margins, which certainly portends a better prognosis for her. Following surgery, her overall post-operative course was uneventful. She was seen in the outpatient oncology clinic, where she was offered adjuvant chemotherapy with doxorubicin, iphosphamide, and mesna. She continues to follow up with the oncology with hopes for a continued good recovery. Adrian, that sounds fantastic. Um, just wanted to summarize some of the takeaway points. I mean, a lot of different teaching points here from this patient who's coming in with one month of fatigue and found to have anemia of chronic disease and a pericardial effusion and pericardial mass and atrial fibrillation. So we went over diagnostic reasoning or or what to expect in imaging or echocardiography of atrial fibrillation. We discussed pericardial masses. We discussed the different diagnostic modality for pericardial imaging and ultimately the final management of this pericardial mass. So a lot of nice key takeaway points from this case. Yeah, I agree. There is so much to take away from this case. And, you know, I think one thing that I'm taking away is primarily because the incidence of pericardial masses and especially primary pericardial cancers is so low, the index of suspicion should also be higher, right? And I'm just thinking about how she presented. She presented really with constitutional symptoms and then later also developed an arrhythmia, atrial fibrillation. But just thinking through how these patients can present and when we should have this, maybe even just in the back of our mind, maybe very low on the list of differential diagnosis, but somewhere somewhere on that list is, you know, these masses can cause systemic symptoms or local symptoms, right? Systemic consequences might include constitutional symptoms, perineoplastic problems, and distant metastasis is what we were looking for on the FDG PET. And then locally, they can really affect any local tissue, right? So pericardium, maybe with an infusion or pericarditis or constriction, myocardium with compression, infiltration, causing diastolic dysfunction, and like our patient had, arrhythmia coronary, potentially causing ischemia, valvular, potentially causing distortion and regurgitation, and the surrounding mediastinal structures. 
that yes, pericardial masses should be in the differential diagnosis, but really can have so many different manifestations and cross-sectional imaging ends up being so vital to helping us delineate that. But Adrian, Nagin, and Patrick, thank you so much for hanging out with us here at Venice Beach and discussing this really great case that we all had the pleasure of learning from. Thank you. Thanks, Amit. That was so much fun. And Adrian, thank you so much for sharing the case. And special thanks to our chief cardiology fellow, Nagin, for joining us and teaching us so much. Thank you, Amit. And thank you, Patrick, for the invitation. It was great to be here with you today. All right, guys, let's just sit back and enjoy the sunset. And with that, I'd love to invite Dr. Eric Yang, who is the Associate Program Director here at UCLA and runs the Cardio Oncology Program. So we'd love to hear from Dr. Yang about his expert thoughts about this case. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Yang of the UCLA Cardio Oncology Program, and it is truly my great pleasure and privilege to provide commentary for this Cardio Nerds podcast, reflecting on the fascinating case presented by our UCLA Cardiology Bruin Hearts Fellows, Drs. Patrick Zaka, Nagin Shahande, and Adrian Castillo. I would like to provide my deepest thanks to the Cardio Nerds leadership for giving us the opportunity to present this interesting case and for allowing me to add on to what has already been a very interesting discussion on the workup diagnosis and management of cardiac masses. As our cardio nurse discussants have shown, the nature and presentation of cardiac masses, as in many cases, is usually an unexpected finding and typically on the lower end of one's differential when someone presents with either cardiac or non-cardiac complaints. This is likely because of the overall extreme rarity of how these present in our day-to-day -day practice, as well as overall our poor understanding of who is at risk and their overall trajectory and timeline because they largely, especially with related to primary malignant to cardiac tumors, remain unknown. They usually present late and are usually associated with a poor prognosis. However, with the advent of today's modern advanced imaging modalities, our fellows and colleagues have the ability to use a variety of precise imaging techniques to denote as much characteristics of these tumors as possible in order for us to come as close as we can to a non-invasive based differential, as this may greatly depend on and determine the surgical and interventional strategies to ensure the best outcome. But I'd like to pull back for a little bit to the very beginning about the overall assessment of a cardiac mass and in general, the way we work it up. As many people know, because ultimately, as they say in the pathology business, tissue is the issue, before you get to that, many steps are typically required in order to determine the mass's etiology, the likelihood of it being malignant, and how to approach it. Although cardio-oncology for me personally is a major aspect of my personal clinical practice, this in general is a rare minority of cases where most of the field focuses, particularly on cardiotoxicity induced by cancer treatments and or cancer biology, or addressing and treating or attenuating previous cardiovascular disease or risk factors going into cancer treatment. Therefore, it is a challenging disease state to address because of the relative lack of data in the literature. So when a mass is happened upon, whether incidentally or by a cardiac workup for symptoms, first, one must ask oneself, obviously, well, what is the likelihood that this is a malignancy? 
And the differential in all statistical likelihood for most cardiac masses ends up being something that is usually not a malignancy. One must exclude other processes such as thrombus, foreign bodies, although that is very rare, embryonic remnants, which particularly occur in the right side of the heart, and in some cases, endocarditis or vegetations. And therefore, clinical correlation and thorough assessment is obviously critical. However, in general, any malignancy involving the heart is substantially more common due to metastatic causes, a secondary to a primary malignancy outside of the heart. It is estimated that metastatic lesions are greater than 100 times more common, and in many cases, the pericardium is the most common site of involvement, although sometimes on imaging, this can be hard to see. In many cases, is diagnosed on autopsy. And how it involves the pericardium can affect cardiac function in many ways. The most obvious manifestation can be a pericardial fusion, and either a patient can present with or without tamponade physiology. Occasionally, there's direct myocardial invasion, which is usually the method of which a angiosarcoma originating from the myocardium can also present. Long-term effects also can involve pericardial constriction, and finally, pericarditis as major mechanisms of hemodynamically significant effects. However, when we are looking at secondary causes, meaning that the findings represent metastatic spread, usually finding a primary is of the utmost importance and part of the workup, and sometimes may be difficult. However, carcinoma is usually coming from the lung or the breast, which is the most common primary site in women, typically are sites that can metastasize to the pericardium. Also, however, when patients present with leukemia or various types of lymphoma, pericardial involvement, if not the entire heart, can also be involved. And also extracardiac sarcomas can metastasize to the heart as well, including gastrointestinal, gynecologic, and genital urinary malignancies. I've all been reported in the literature to also spread to the heart. Mechanisms by how tumors can metastasize to the heart include a variety of routes, including hematogenous, transvenous, lymphatic spread, or direct invasion. Also, the metastatic route can also determine the target tissue. For instance, masses that spread through the lymphatics often can seed or spread to the pericardium or epicardium. From an imaging standpoint, however, most findings are nonspecific, and this can be difficult and may not necessarily delineate whether the malignancy is primary or secondary to an outside source. However, they can range from finding the presence of an effusion, irregular thickening of the pericardium or nodularity, and distinct pericardial masses, which was seen in this case. And therefore, more advanced imaging may be necessary as echocardiography is typically the first line in imaging. We do have now better tools and more precise tools such as cardiac MRI and cardiac computed tomography. And while they may assist in narrowing one's differential, it is more important that these tools are used to precisely delineate the extent of cardiac involvement, as well as potentially pre-surgical planning in the event surgery is indicated for mass excision, including coronary evaluation. With cardiac MRI, most secondary neoplasms to the pericardium may potentially have low signal intensity on T1-weighted imaging. 
However, there are always exceptions to the rule. And one particular example is metastatic melanoma, which might have high signal intensity due to the bounding of paramagnetic metals by melanin. Also, post-contrast latent imaging can also show pericardial enhancement in areas of metastasis in the pericardium. Other than metastatic lesions to the pericardium, however, thankfully, benign causes of pericardial masses are more common. Differentials of benign findings include a lipoma, pericardial cyst, which is a fluid-filled structure, and there are also some more other types of fascinomas, such as a paraganglioma, which is a nickname for a cardiac pheochromocytoma, especially if it is secreting catecholamines, which can be associated with multiple endocrine systems, especially types 2A and B. Also, hemangiomas have been reported in the literature. While some of these benign findings do not require intervention, they can cause potentially mechanical obstructive effects, pericardial fusions, and other complications which may warrant surgical intervention. In reviewing the malignant primary tumors of the pericardium, the most likely primary malignancy of the pericardium is malignant mesotheliomia, which comprises of less than 5% of primary neoplasms. And also, lymphomas, which affect men twice as commonly as women, and clinical symptoms can be very highly variable. Usually the type of lymphoma that is most commonly involving the pericardium includes diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which has been reported up to 75% of published reports, as well as chronic lymphocytic leukemia as being causes of pericardial involvement as well as the rest of the heart. Finally, in discussing the nature of the case that was presented, pericardial angiosarcomas typically are not usually formed in the pericardium, but usually the right side, typically the right atrium, and can extend into the pericardium. Although causes and who is vulnerable is ultimately unknown, there also have been rare reports that such sarcomas have arisen after radiation therapy to the breast or thorax. In looking at the literature and in case reports, patients can present with two sinister acute symptoms of syncope and tamponade, likely due to rapid extension or rupture of the mass due to its high vascularity into the pericardium, usually requiring acute intervention of pericardial fluid drainage. And therefore, afterwards, the discovery of the mass and cancer is made. On CT imaging, obviously angiosarcomas are highly vascular structures with a nodular contour. And sometimes, if timed correctly, can show post-contrast enhancement. CT can also delineate the extent of cardiac invasion, which unfortunately is, is seen frequently on, on the time of diagnosis. And most commonly, as stated before, the cardiac angiosarcomas arise in the region of the right atrial ventricular groove, which can also involve the right coronary artery. And like other pericardial malignancies, this is associated with the pericardial effusion, and therefore hemopericardium can be a manifestation of the disease. On cardiac MRI, T1-weighted imaging modalities show that the signal intensity is dependent on the extent of hemorrhage and necrosis, and therefore can vary in appearance. And also on T2-weighted imaging and steady-state free precession images, there's increased signal intensity. There's also on post-contrast imaging, avid tumor enhancement. And with diffuse involvement of the pericardium, however, there can be other secondary effects, not only with tamponade, but also with constrictive physiology based on the duration and presence of the tumor. Other malignant forms can also involve synovial sarcoma and germ cell tumors. 
However, unfortunately, because of the advanced presentation of many of these cases, this is associated with a poor prognosis, usually lasting months from diagnosis. Because of the way and variety and heterogeneous ways these patients present, and based on cardiac involvement, the decision to undergo biopsy versus an attempted complete resection really can requires a lot of multidisciplinary discussion of risk and benefit. However, the decision to take the surgery obviously has a lot hinging on this. As with many soft tissue sarcomas, complete surgical resection is the most important factor in long-term disease-free and overall survival. There also have been case reports where metastatic disease was ruled out by PET imaging or even cardiac transplantation was offered. Chemotherapy regimens, unfortunately, while offered, do not particularly remain effective and including with our patient has involved strategies using anthracyclines, platinum-based treatments, ifosfamide, and other treatments. Oncologists have also attempted to take a more precision-based approach in testing for actual mutations and targeted therapies, including immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies, which continue to be studied. But ultimately, the best and most effective treatment is effective resection. But ultimately, like many complex disease states, cardiac primary malignancies require a multidisciplinary heart team approach involving your oncologists, cardiothoracic surgery, advanced cardiac imagers, interventional cardiology and radiology, and cardio-oncologists to decide and ensure the best diagnostic and surgical strategy to ensure the best possible outcome for a very serious and prognostically grim disease. Once again, I would like to thank our CardioNerds hosts for allowing us to share this case from sunny Los Angeles, where we all hope to see you again in person. And I would like to thank our fellows again, Nagin, Patrick, and Adrian, for a wonderful presentation and lively discussion. Thank you and be safe, everyone.